Hey there, history fans. Welcome back to the History Explains It All podcast, where we cover a variety of historical topics from Stone Age to the modern age. I'm Lauren. I'm Melissa. And on today's episode, we're back to our Halloween. It's our final Halloween episode of the year. Oh, I'm kind of sad. Eh, we've got more stuff planned. I know, but it, it's Halloween. It's our favorite time of the year. I mean, yes. Yes, it is. And I, I, you, I don't know that you've seen the numbers for the most recent, obviously, the Halloween episodes. They've been doing pretty well. I mean... It's Halloween. Yeah. Well, you never me, run out of topics for Halloween. That is true. Um, out of the three we've done so far, Gilles de Ray, Marquis de Sade, and Elizabeth Bathory, uh, Marquis de Sade is blowing all the other ones out of the water. Well, yeah, that's normal. Is it? That is the most explicit episode we've had so far. <laughs> yeah, that's normal. They tend to do that. Um, oh, it's like, I assumed it was just more like a true crime thing, and that was the most uh, horrific episode topic we could come up with for the moment. I mean, yeah, again. But today's episode is on Vlad Tepes. Yay! You know, the one that supposedly inspired Dracula by Bram Supposedly. Well, it's, it's believed... You know what? We'll get into that in the episode. Before we start. Look at those numbers. Yeah, no, I did see those numbers. Yeah. Yeah, I think given uh, given our current place, which have been just blowing up in the last, well, particularly in the last month, obviously for October, but I mean. We're doing pretty good. Yeah. We're really happy, so thank I, you for listening. I think we could hit 4,000 plays in the next couple of weeks. Tops. I think so. Uh, easy, yeah. But that means thank you for listening. We really appreciate that. On that note, don't forget to check out our Instagram and Facebook, History Explains It All underscore podcast, uh, where we do Today in History, Archaeology in the News, and a Photo Friday. Not necessarily all in that order, but Photo Fridays are always on Friday. Unless I'm late, which I'm sorry about. Sometimes it happens. Also, leave us a rate and review. It's how others find us. And it also lets us know what you're thinking, how you like the podcast. You can also reach out to us at historyexplainsall at gmail.com. I think we had talked about, because we haven't settled on a series for next year yet. I know we had a couple of different options. Mm-hmm. Were we planning on posting a poll sometime in the upcoming weeks to have everyone pick and choose from that? I don't have that on me right now. Oh. Well, if we we have something, we'll post it. it. We can put it at the end, too. Yeah. I'll look it up while while we're doing this. It's it's on here. I just have to go to the topic section. Well, thank you for listening. That's the show. No, just kidding. (laughs) You're opening this one. it's the end. (laughs) End scene. (laughs) End scene. (laughs) All right. Do I have to open it? No, I'm kidding. Well, you got to open the the, the, the the document first, so then you, you're the one who's starting off with the first section. <sighs> okay. <laughs> yeah, disclaimer. If you have children around, no. <laughs> Leave the room. Turn the podcast off. Skip it. Something. Listen another time. Put headphones in. Make sure the children cannot hear this. There are... Gory, bloody, not very nice topics. And no, essentially this uh, episode, much like the other three episodes and our 
Halloween series are listed as explicit, and this particular episode does discuss themes of murder, torture, impalement, and then pretty much impalement. <laughs> so, um, obviously, if you don't want to hear descriptions of how to torture people in the 1400s, I would skip this episode and go to next week's episode, because those are going to be a laugh. Yes. Vlad Tepish was born sometime between the year 1428 to 1431, unknown which one, and was the second son to Vlad Dracul, which was the second Vlad Dracul. Hence, Vlad was the third Vlad Dracul. And his father had gained the name Dracul when he entered or gained membership into the Order of the Dragon. If you don't know, the Latin word for dragon is Draco, Drac. Cool. Is the Hungarian version. Romanian is based off of Hungarian, which yeah. is uh, also a yay for me. I, I don't know that you know, and I'm just going to throw it out there for funsies for in case anyone else who doesn't know. Um, Hungarian and Romanian are very distant cousins of Finnish. They all share the same root. I did not know that. I didn't think you did. But, but how, Something to learn. How would I know that? No, of you, course. <laughs> I learn something new all the time on this. Uh-huh. And he gained membership in 1488, which... 1408. 1408, I'm sorry. I'm looking right at it, and I said 1488 anyway. Which, the Order of the Dragon is a military fraternity which was found founded by the Holy Roman Emperor Sigismund in 1408. Who his mother is, it's not known. Vlad II was married twice. She could have been... His mother could have been... Um, the first wife or not, we were not sure. Yay! Lots of unknowns. Yeah, it's believed that his mother may have possibly been a relative to Alexander I of Moldavia, uh, which would have been the second wife. Yeah. The relative. His father gained possession, I guess we could say, of Wallachia, which is land. In, in Transylvania. In Transylvania, which is now part of modern-day Romania. Mm-hmm. So it's Wallachia, Transylvania, Romania. Let's go bigger. Small yeah. to big. Sure. In 1436, when his brother Alexander I of Althea died, a charter was issued on January 20th, 1437, which states that his sons Mercaea and Vlad, the first and second son, they're successors basically yes and there was another treasure from 1439 which includes their younger brother one of their younger brothers radu that's a whole nother story which we could actually probably i wish we could do an episode on or weird history it's he's weird i mean radu's a big player in the life of his elder brother and we'll talk about it but if you I don't know how much of a weird history, but we could certainly do a profile biography episode on, on the Radu for sure. I mean, that'd be interesting. All right. Um, during the time that Vlad was a child and growing up, there was quite a bit of upheaval and war. And of course, it was with the Ottoman Turks who were trying to expand their own territory by gaining other Christian lands. And 
1442, they, they invaded or attempted to invade Transylvania and Vlad II did oppose it. And due to this, Sultan Murad II ordered, ordered Vlad II to send his sons Vlad and Radu to Gallipoli, where they would pay tribute and show their loyalty. Basically, it was like having them go on a pilgrimage mission. But when they arrived in Gallipoli, they were captured and imprisoned. And the sons continued to remain hostages for quite a while. Yeah, the three of them were en route to pay their new technically ruler uh, as nobles to pay homage, I guess, to the sultan. And as soon as they entered the sultan's city, harem, I'm not sure, whatever... Uh, Probably city. City, yeah. Harem is within the palace. Well, they could have gone into the court and been arrested there, too. They could have been. Yeah. But all three, the father and his two sons, were arrested. The father was later imprisoned, and his sons had to remain behind. Literally as hostages. Mm-hmm. After he was released and Vlad II decided to take up support with Vladislaus, the king of Poland in order to oppose Sultan Mirad II, which may not have been the best move as his sons were still hostages, which meant that something probably happened to his sons while they were there and he was opposing them. And Vlad II was absolutely convinced that his sons would be killed and murdered while they were in the Sultan's uh, possession. However, it actually wasn't all bad for them. They actually received an education in science and philosophy and in war, which back then they were, the Ottomans were really good at. But, well, I think, yes, yes, they were. There was, there was certainly a lot of emphasis on math and science and philosophy and herbalism, but herbalism in a science set, like, a healer. Yeah. Not herbalism as in, you know, to use peppermint for a stomach ache kind of a thing, but more like here's a poultice or, or poultice, uh, you know, poultice. this <laughs> poultry poultice. Yeah. There you go. But you know, it's, if you really want some really, maybe this will be a weird history. I'll get it. Maybe we'll get into this, but I'm reminding me of a skit from uh, horrible histories where the crusaders would be like, you have a headache? Let me literally lop off the top of your skull to let the demons out. And then, obviously, the the Turks and the, like, the people from that area were like, oh, you have a headache? Let's check your diet. Let's check this. Have to try this. You know, this should help. <laughs> and obviously, they were a lot better at that kind of science than some of the surrounding religions but in addition to that i this is the 1440s i think this is about the height of the ottoman turk empire yes because the ottoman empire by this point was massive if i've got my dates correct yeah i mean it's the ottoman empire in 1446 vlad ii decided to recognize the sultan and he promised that he would pay tribute to the sultan and this is when 
Vlad III and his brother Radu were supposedly released from the Sultan's, quote, care, end quote. And, give, and they returned to Vlad II, their father. When the Regency governor of Hungary, John Hunyadi, invaded Wallachia in 1447, Vlad and Radu fled the court. Fled. fled fled to the court, sorry. fled. They fled to Wallachia and fled to the court of the Sultan. They were in back to the Sultan. Yeah. If you pay tribute to him. Well, he treated you well. Yeah, and while you were a prisoner, you got treated rather well with an education. If, if you're being attacked and you send your sons to flee, that's where I'd go to. And the eldest son, Merkea, and father were the ones that stayed behind, and they were murdered by Hunyadi's troops. And it is believed, or legend has it, that Vlad II was assassinated behind his, behind the home, and Merkea was tortured, blinded, and then buried alive. After this occurred, Vladislav II, who is Vlad's cousin, became the new ruler of Wallachia. It sounds ridiculously common. Well, that's a given from a so many history. Vlads. So many Vlads. No, that's Russian history. No, Vlads. So many Vlads. Uh, no, no. I thought you meant like that. The whole uh, chain of the whole chain of Vlads is confusing. <laughs> Tell me, I'm not. There, we've only been talking about two. We've been talking about three now. Vladislav the second, Vlad the second, Vlad the third. And they're pretty easy to keep straight. Two of them are related. Well, actually, they're all related. But what I'm saying is that in terms of one person dies, the other takes over inheritance stuff, most of human history was incredibly complicated. Yes. I mean, you want that? Just go back to Richard III. But anywho, uh, so when Vladislav and Hunyadi left the country to go fight the Turks, Vlad, the son, uh, took the opportunity to invade as part of the head of the Ottoman army in October 1448. And together they were able to defeat Hunyadi's army at the Battle of Kosovo and that exact same month as well. So it's a pretty big army that's really well trained. And very soon his cousin Vladislav II returned from Wallachia with the rest of his army in order to sort of so, so the Turks are invading. The ruler is out of the country. Vlad and his Turkish army defeat the Hungarian army. And now his cousin, who's now ruling Wallachia, come back and try to fight the Turkish army with his cousin at the head. Vladislav II was able to cause Vlad and his Turkish army to flee back in uh, December, so in a couple of months. Not long after his attempt to gain his family's seat, which failed, Vlad then fled to nearby Moldavia in the fall of 1449, where his uncle, Bogdan II, was on the throne. Bogdan was soon murdered by Peter III, Aaron, in October of 1451, and Bogdan's son, Stephen, then fled with Vlad to Transylvania in order to seek assistance from Hunyadi. Hunyadi didn't die when his troops were overrun. His troops died, and he was able to flee. 
Now, in November 1451, Hunyadi was able to contract a three-year truce with the Turks, not an easy feat to do, which also acknowledged the Wallachian boyar's right to choose the successor after the death of the current ruler, Vladislav II, cousin. So initially wanting to settle in Vlasov, but that was, he couldn't do that. He was denied by Hunyadi, who told Vlad he couldn't settle there. So he moved back to Moldavia, which was now currently under the rule of Alexandro. The years between 1452 and 1456 are unknown and what happened with Vlad Zrakul's life. It's only four years, but there's a lot more information about the rest of his life. Now it is known that he invaded Wallachia again in the spring of 1456. During this time, his cousin, the ruler, Vladislav II, died. After his death, Vlad then rightfully took over and became Vlad III. And at that time, he made declarations to the entire people of Transylvania that he would defend them against the Turks should the Turks invade. But if you're wondering, wait, he was heading the Turkish army when he went back to take his family seat. And now he's against the Turks. He never liked the Turks to begin with, but it was convenient because he was, at this time, Transylvania is very Christian and the Turks are aiming to invade. In the declaration, he also stated, when a man or a prince is strong and powerful, he can make peace as he wants to. But when he's weak, a stronger one will come and do whatever he wants to him. And in this letter stating this information to the people of Transylvania, it shows the beginning of his authoritarianism, which would obviously manifest later to come. And there are actually multiple records that show hundreds, maybe even thousands of people were executed by Vlad and his mercenaries, I guess, after he ascended to the throne of Wallachia. And this was actually mostly due to a purge that he performed of the nobility who had actually stood against him, his family, and his father, and all those who had a hand in murdering his family. Now, in one of the chronicles, uh, it writes, Vlad quickly effected a great change and utterly revolutionized the affairs of Wallachia through granting the money, property, and other goods of his victims to his retainers. So he took their money and lands. There is a legend that he, one point, set up a dinner for the nobles and Wallachia and Transylvania, and all of them showed up. Obviously, he's now ruler. It would be stupid not to show up. But also, your nobles, you're going to show up too. But most of the nobles that had gone to this dinner were also those who opposed his rule and stood against his father. At some point during the festivities, as most of the other nobles were drunk and, and feasting and everything, it said that he did not consume or eat anything. But at a point where most of the, if not all of the other nobles, were fairly drunk, Vlad then ordered his guards to close the doors on the feast hall, lock them, come in, and kill everybody in attendance, and then have their bodies impaled. That is a very common theme in his life. So despite being against the Ottomans, Vlad, though, still continued to pay tribute to Sultan Murad. And this was kind of a good thing for him to do because it kept the Sultan from continually invading. 
Also, at the same time, his brother, younger brother Radu, is still with the sultan, but not as a hostage. We'll get into that. Now, during a civil war that had begun in Hungary in 1456, Vlad had assisted the son of Bogdan II in gaining the throne of Moldavia after his father died. In addition, Vlad then raided Transylvania. There are actually German stories from this record that have Vlad and his armies, quote, carrying men, women, and children from a Saxon village to Wallachia and then having them impaled. Very violent. Now, when Hunyadi's son Matthias Corvinus was elected the new king of Hungary in January of 1458, he ordered the nobles to keep peace with Vlad because partly he's pretty fearful of him and Vlad tends to be very passionate about killing his enemies. Oh, that's an understatement. <laughs> After this, Vlad then styled himself as lord and ruler of over, over all of Wallachia the duchies of Almas and Fagaras. So not only did Vlad have a disdain for obviously the Turks, he also had a disdain for Saxons, so early German, or I, 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 what would you call Saxons? Because I think Saxons, I think England. Saxons were a German faction, maybe? I don't know if we're gonna find out. German, they were basically German. It's just oh. a, a type of German people from the Middle Ages. Yeah. Okay. Because yeah. you can't just say all of Germany was Saxon because that wasn't it. But it was a sect of people of German descent in yes. the Middle Ages. Got it. Okay. I just want to get that a little more clarified. So you also hate the Saxons. We <laughs> basically hate everybody. Anybody that was not Romanian Christian. Yeah. I don't even know if he was Orthodox or what, but he was, yeah, pretty much, because I don't even know if the Saxons were necessarily Christian or they were just in their own sect, too. Um, you know, maybe we'll look into it. But the Saxons, Germany was nearby, and so Germany had a, a the, the Germanic people throughout most of European history had a habit of spreading out, and he didn't want that to happen. And he also dis, you know, hated them, so he would impale and punish them, too. So in 1458, he actually forbade any one of Saxon descent from entering Wallachia and then also forcing them to sell their wares to anyone at the border. So you couldn't cross into the country. And if you try to, you we're going to take all your possessions. The Saxons obviously grouped up and rebelled and then confiscated some steel that had actually been bought by a Wallachian servant on the border. And in response to this, Vlad ransacked and tortured several of those Saxon merchants. Now, ruler Dan III at this time had actually taken up an opposition to Vlad and claimed that he had children of the Saxon merchants impaled and burnt alive. So they're, obviously they were probably happening before then, but after this particular raid on Saxons, then the rulers of the surrounding countries are now spreading rumors about Vlad and his murderous impalements and burning people and well, there's a lot to go on with that now in april of 1460 dan iii uh, took up arms and invaded Wallachia to defeat vlad but he failed and then vlad had him executed that same month so he was executed very quickly after he was captured after that vlad then took his army and invaded southern transylvania 
destroying any towns they came across and ordering the impalement of anybody that was captured. After he was done with that, he finally entered negotiations, which were drawn up in July of that year. And then he went on to the regions of Almas and Fagaris to punish those who had supported Dan III in his attempt to overthrow Vlad. Oh, yeah, there's a lot, but we'll get into even more later. I know. And Vlad was married twice that we know of. We don't know the identity of wife number one. We do know that she died. And she may have been the daughter of John Hunyadi, which is interesting considering that he invaded his hometown. Or Hunyadi did. Well, yes, but no. But given his second wife, that's not exactly an unusual thing. True. I mean, it's also how you created peace back then by marrying the child or daughter of your enemy to your son or something like that. Or your sister. Hey, the enemy or the uh, higher noble or the Holy Roman Emperor. Yeah, it's a whole bunch. And he did marry a second time, and his second wife was Justina Sizilagi. Such great names that I cannot pronounce for the life of me who was a Catholic cousin to the King of Hungary, and they were married in 1475, and he died before she did. It's really all we know about the marriages. Unfortunately, there's not much. A lot of the focus is on Vlad himself. Yeah, there's even more information about her father and his relationship with Vlad. Well, again, that doesn't truly surprise me, because, again, men were the main focus at the Uh, time. I was going to say, women in history, I mean, there's the saying... Uh, what what wait what's the saying um, yeah, i don't know which one you're talking about good girls rarely make history right if you're quiet demure and, and do as you're told you really don't you, you really don't make the history books too much pretty much i think the only reason she's even mentioned is because of her who her father was so yeah i mean that's kind of it but See, I guess this episode isn't about the wives. Let's go back to Vlad, because this is about the men, right? (laughs) That was bad. Sorry. Now, this section is going to be mostly about his war with the Turks. But again, keep in mind, Vlad is now the heir and successor to Wallachia, ruling as Vlad III, fighting for the Christians in his area against the Turks, against the Saxons. But at the same time, his younger brother, Radu, is living with the Sultan and the Turks and being brought up in their religion. Now, at some point, it's not known when, but at some point, Vlad began to fail in his tribute to Sultan, who is now Sultan Mehmed II. And according to contemporary accounts, it may have been even begin to start as early as 1461. This obviously did not send, sit well with Sultan Mehmet II, and he sent an envoy to bring Vlad to Constantinople. He also ordered Hamza to capture him as soon as he crossed the Danube. Hamza was one of his higher-ups. Now, around the same time, Vlad had begun negotiations with the king of Hungary, and this was long before he married. So this is 1461. He didn't marry his second wife until 1475. But he was a longtime supporter and friend of the King of Hungary. So now Vlad has taken up negotiations with him and the two of them began to support 
a war against the Turks. Vlad soon found out about the order of Hamza to have him captured as soon as he crossed the Danube River. And as soon as he found this out, he had both not just the envoy that was sent to capture him, but also Hamza himself. Everyone was captured on the Turkish side and then also quickly executed. After this, with this particular plot in mind from the Turks, Vlad made a move to invade the Ottoman Empire. And along the way, sacking the fortresses of Girgiu, as well as murdering and raiding along the Danube River, which is a very big river, very important. And in a letter to the King of Hungary on his conquest, he writes, more than 23,884 Turks and Bulgarians have been killed during the campaign. That's a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. Nearly 25,000 people. And this same letter, he also asked the king for even further support, claiming that he broke the peace treaty with the sultan, quote, for the honor of the king and the holy crown of Hungary and for the preservation of Christianity and the strengthening of the Catholic faith. It's like a little mini crusade. At this time, he also even gained a nickname from the Turks. I'm going to butcher this. Kaziklub Bey, which translates to an impale, the impaling prince. Because... If there's almost anything and most people know about Vlad Dracul as the actual person, his favorite method of torture was impalement. Now, when Mehmet II learned of Vlad's invasion into the empire, he began to amass more than 150,000 troops, which is a lot, and sent them to invade Wallachia. In addition, he also granted the rule of Latvia to, to Vlad's younger brother, Radu, again, still in the court of Sultan, now Mehmet II. And should the 150,000 troops be successful in overthrowing Vlad, Radu would then become the new ruler. But obviously still paying tribute to the Sultan, be like a puppet. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of how it worked back then when you had an overruler. Yep. Now, when the Ottomans crossed the Danube River in June of 1462, Vlad adopted a very common policy, which is called a scorched earth policy. Burn what you don't need on your route back. And then began a very strategic retreat towards Targovist. Is it Targoviste? Okay. I don't have an accent. I don't know. And on the night of June 16th, Vlad snuck into the Turk encampment, having grown up with them, he knew how to sneak in, and then attempted to either kill or capture Sultan Mehmet II, who was also traveling with them. Unfortunately, the men chose the wrong tent. With an attempt to not get captured, they very quickly, but quietly, snuck back out of the encampment. Now, when the Ottomans entered the city of Tartagoviste at the end of June, they were horrified, as they put it, to see a forest of the impaled. And as they chronicled it, thousands of stakes were displayed with the dead bodies of those who were executed. I mean, I can only imagine what that would have been like, but I'm thinking, obviously, the Tower of London with the heads on pikes, but thousands of them? I'm imagining, like, a giant field it's well that of the palace with all of the heads on the spikes you've seen the word work yeah 
Yeah, that's exactly what I'm, I'm thinking yeah. of, too. It's just, or, like, um, what's his face? Crassus and the Spart- uh, Crassus and Spartacus and all the slaves during the rebellion who were also, I think they were crucified. I don't think they were impaled. But it's essentially just a line of dead slaves down this road back to Crassus's house. That's a whole different episode you'd enjoy talking about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Marcus Licinius Crassus. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Let's not, let's not even get in there. Uh, <laughs> another episode. Now, records have it that the Sultan was not only obviously very appalled by the sight of thousands of his men being impaled. And here's the thing, if you didn't know this with impalement, at this time, at least in the torture for Vlad, you very likely could be alive. The spike or timber or whatever would specifically be used, because most of the time it would be wood, would be sharpened, inserted through your butt, up your body, and then out of your body somewhere near the top. And you would die agonizing, obviously, uh, but you'd be alive during it. You would just either bleed to death, Maybe it punctured organ. You don't know. I mean, it's it, two or three <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> but you could be alive for hours. You could be alive for days. And essentially the entire time, because it's like gravity, you're sliding down the pole. So it's a very agonizing, horrific, gruesome, disgusting way to not only kill, but also to be killed. Now with that out of the way, Sultan Mehmet II reported that there may have been as many as 23,000 of his men lined up for miles around the city of Paragoviste. Mehmet also said, how can we despoil of his estates a man who is not afraid to defend it by such means as these? Fair enough, this guy does not fear anything. I mean, if you grew up like he did, you probably wouldn't. I mean, let me let me ask you this way. It, even one impaled body, but imagine you, it's the Turkish army. They're really good warriors. You come across a field of impaled bodies. Would you continue wanting to go after the person you're trying to capture? Or would you just turn around and go back home? I'd turn around and go back home, but that's me. I think that would be a very smart idea to do. Yeah. And in fact, Mehmet continues on saying that anyone willing to go to such lengths to save his kingdom deserves to keep it. Now, in his book, The Histories, historian... Ooh, this is with Chaco Condiles. It's easier than that. Um, he writes that the Sultan's army entered the area of the impalements, which was 17 stades long and seven stades wide. There were large stakes there on which, as it was said, about 20,000 men, women, and children had been spitted, quite a sight for the Turks and the Sultan himself. The Sultan was seized with amazement and said it was not possible to deprive his country of a man who had done such great deeds, who had such a diabolical understanding of how to govern his realm and its people. And he said that a man who had done such things was worth much. The rest of the Turks were dumbfounded when they saw the multitude of men on the stakes. There were infants, too, affixed to their mothers on the stakes, 
and birds had made nests in their entrails. Way to make a history book really graphic. Now, after this, Vlad then marched towards Kilia, which is now in Ukraine, and attempted to assist the ruler there, Stephen III, but not before leaving 6,000 of his men behind to fight off the Turks. Unfortunately, those men were defeated. After this, Radu, still fighting with the Turks, remained behind, and he ended up sending out letters to villages around Wallachia, letting them know that the sultan could easily invade again if he needed to. Though Vlad attempted to fight his brother, over the course of few months, many on Vlad's side ended up switching to his younger brother's side because you had the Turks had more men, more military, and more money. You, I mean, you've got 15,000 to 150,000. Okay. Uh, yeah, I could see that. Radu was very soon recognized as the new ruler of Wallachia and then entered in relations with the local Saxons as well, who also hated his elder brother. This ended up causing Vlad to flee to the Carpathian Mountains with the hope that the king of Hungary would help him retake the throne eventually. Negotiations between the king and Vlad began in around November of 1462 and lasted for quite some time. Unfortunately for Vlad, the king was not really interested in going to war with the Ottomans. He would give him some money and support, but he did not really want to send people. Under the order of the king, Vlad was then captured near the Wallachian border and then imprisoned under the king's rule. At the same time, Pope Pius II and various Venetians had actually begun to finance a campaign against the Turks because the Turks had tried to invade Italy. They were successful in invading Greece for quite some time, but they couldn't successfully invade Italy. And the King of Hungary had to come up with a reason for kidnapping and imprisoning another ruler, the ruler being Vlad. So apparently the king of Poland, and also in order to appease the Pope, fabricated three letters, which he claimed had been written by Vlad himself. The letters, which were addressed to Mehmet II, Mahmoud Pasha, and Stephen of Moldavia, stated that he, Vlad, offered to join his army with the Sultan's army against Hungary on the stipulation that a Sultan restore him to his throne in Wallachia. Obviously fabricated because we know that Vlad hates the Turks and is in support of the King of Hungary. But we know that. They mm -hmm. didn't know that. And this was actually really successful for the King of Hungary. Once this was successful, the king had him first sent to Belgrade, but then had him transferred to Visegrad, where he was then held for the next 14 years, imprisoned by the King of Hungary. 14 years. It wasn't until 1475 that he was released. Remember that date from before when we were talking about his second marriage. Now, at this same year, at the same time he was released, Stephen III asked the King of Hungary to also release him because Stephen was also getting invasions by the Turks and wanted to have a ruler in place in Wallachia to help him fight against the Turks. Because obviously Vladu is now current ruler of Wallachia and in support of the Turks. 
According to a rumor, Vlad was finally released after he had officially converted to Catholicism. Also, after marrying the daughter of the king of Hungary, who was a devout Catholic. Whether or not Vlad intended to uphold his new Catholicism is a whole different thing. He had promised to convert to Catholicism and marry the daughter of the king of Hungary and was thence released from his prison. And when he was, he was now officially recognized as the rightful uh, ruler of Wallachia. However, even after 14 years and obviously false imprisonment, the king refused to provide him with any support for his campaign to take back his throne from his younger brother. Despite this, though, Vlad returned to Transylvania and then set up camp near Wallachia. And early in 1476, the king asked Vlad to go fight against the Turks in nearby Bosnia. During this campaign, he actually stepped back into his torturous ways. He hadn't been able to do that for quite some time and consistently raided and impaled people along the way. You got the M.O., you stick to it. <laughs> hey, if it installs oh, fear, Lord. you go with it, I guess. Uh, and July of 14... I, I had that correctly. <laughs> I wrote down 1746. In 1476, Mehmet II invaded Moldavia and unfortunately defeated Stephen III. Learning of this, Vlad, along with Stephen Bathory... Related to Elizabeth from last week's episode, her cousin, Stephen, <laughs> yeah, uh, led forces to defeat the sultan and then also to lift his siege that he had set at Ed Targo Neat. And then, as I also mentioned, Stephen Bathory was, uh, well, okay, it's 1476. I'm sorry. There was a, Bathory had a cousin, Stephen, but this was also a, a distant relation, a previous Stephen Bathory, who was an ancestor to Elizabeth Bathory. But yes. Now, despite their rivalry, the King of Hungary ordered the Saxons of Wallachia to support Stephen Bathory and Steve, the new Stephen of Moldavia and their effort to expel the Turks. They were finally able to capture the city of Tardegoviste in November of 1476. Stephen of Moldavia and Vlad publicly declared their allegiance to each other because they fought together to move the Turks out too, but they've been they've known each other for a while, and they fought together, and they're political friends at least, if you will. And then after pledging their allegiance to each other to defend the Turks from entering, they then went on to capture the city of Bucharest, and there, Vlad was crowned the Prince of Wallachia for the third time on November twenty sixth. Ottoman forces decided to return to Wallachia and again do an invasion. And unfortunately, they won this one as Vlad was killed during action either in December. What? What? <laughs> I just had a funny thought. I like how in the middle of me talking, she's like, stop, stop. <laughs> funny, funny thought. In the middle of talking That's about this dude's death. Uh, we'll get back to it. Give me a second. I just, I just, you'll get a kick out of this. Much like England was Catholic, Protestant, Catholic, Protestant, Catholic, Protestant, mm -hmm. Wallachia, Turkish, Christian, Turkish, Christian, Turkish, Christian. 
Back forth, back and forth, back and forth. I mean, that was most of places back then, I, especially when it was one one person taking over. I know. It's like every five years it changes. Yeah. That not you're not wrong. Okay, back I'm gonna start over now, Sorry. just so you know. <laughs> so the Ottomans decided to invade Wallachia once again. And in December of 1476 or January 1477, Vlad Dracul was killed in action. A letter written by Stephen of Moldavia dated January 10th, 1477, writes that Vlad and his retinue had been massacred by the Turks. According to contemporary reports, Vlad and his army of 2,000 had been cornered by a Turkish force of 4,000 near Snagol. That sounds so wrong. Snoggle. Sounds kind of like snot. I believe Snoggoff. Snoggle of Snoggoff. Uh, is that the... That's not the lake. I don't I think that's the lake. Yep, it's the lake. Snoggoff, there's a, a monastery. Where he yeah, there's buried. a monastery and I think a lake right next to it. Yep. 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 Okay, that's what I thought. I well, there it, it is now a town. There is a town now. Yeah, but it's I just, just remember north. seeing that. It's not that far north of Bucharest, so. Oh, no, you could probably drive there in less than an hour. Yeah, basically. Uh, it is unclear exactly how Vlad died. One source says that an undercover Turkish assassin, assassin <laughs> stuck into his camp and killed him. <laughs> you should probably not do this when we're hungry. <laughs> a little snack please <laughs> another another report says that he was mistakenly identified as a Turk by his own troops and this may be a more accurate one as according to other historian by by I'm sorry according by the historian Radu Florescu and historians Radu Florescu and Raymond McNally Vlad had a habit of disguising himself as a Turkish soldier in battle. I mean, that would give him an advantage if you're disguised as a Turkish soldier fighting Turkish soldiers. It's kind of like someone from the inside is killing your own people, but it's really not. Right. And that's not uncommon in a lot of battles, I think. Adding even more to the mystery, it's unknown where he's buried. We don't know. Yay. From... Accounts that started in about the 1800s, it said that he was possibly buried at the monastery at Snogov. However, excavations in 1933 revealed that there was no tomb in the church holding his body. In the tomb that was associated with him, Dr. Rossetti found only animal bones. Dr. Rossetti? Uh, missed that one, sorry. Probably the person who found the tomb in 1933? Yeah, I'm assuming so. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Historian Konstantin Rezachevivi writes that he may have been buried in the church at the Komana Monastery, which had been established by, by Vlad and was located somewhere near where he supposedly died. After Vlad III's death, his surviving son, Vlad Dracula, laid claim to the throne in 1495. However, he wasn't that great of a ruler. He he ended up losing it, and I think the Ottomans he, ended up taking over. I, I think he only held on to the throne for, I don't even think, four years. No. That. It was very short. 
Well, that is Vlad the Rakul's life, but that is not the end of the story. So, as we mentioned multiple, multiple, multiple times, his biggest historic legacy is obviously his propensity towards violence and intense brutality. And they began during his conquest to gain control of Wallachia, even from the first time on. When he was imprisoned by the King of Hungary, these stories were promoted even more about his brutality. And the stories of his violent ways made it all the way to Pope Pius II, even as early as 1462. And in fact, a poem written by Metsu singer Michael Baheim titled The Story of a Despot Called Dracula, Voivoda Wallachia, was performed at the court of Frederick III, Holy Roman Emperor, in 1463. So he, he definitely made his name known throughout much of Europe at that time. The Bishop of Agar, Gabriel Rangani, stated that Vlad was imprisoned because of his cruelty. I mean, I guess that could have been true to a point if he was correctly imprisoned. And he also goes on to write that while in prison, Vlad caught rats to cut them into pieces, stick them on pieces of wood because he was unable to forget his wickedness. So many rumors. He couldn't impale people, so he captured rats and impaled them instead, because he had a bloodlust. In the book Historia of Panonica from 1495, author Antonio Bonfini writes that the well-known visit by Turkish envoys goes as such. The Turkish messengers came to Vlad to pay respects, but refused to take off their turbans. This is a very common story you'll hear. And according to their ancient custom, of wearing their turbans when meeting rulers, Vlad decided that he was going to strengthen, as he put it, their custom, and nailed their turbans to their heads with three spikes so that they were not able to take them off. Given that he was incredibly cruel to the Saxons, hated them, there are many, many stories of Vlad's cruelties in German that come from this time and as early as 1460 that we can find and they describe his horrific campaign across the Danube River to kill Saxons. They also just talk about his general conflict with the local Saxons as well but also how much brutality he inflicted upon them and it's been accredited that these accounts are most likely based off of eyewitness testimonies because they are very detailed but are also backed up by official records. And those records also include churches that were destroyed in the area and dates of various raids that can coincide with other documents. And in them, Vlad is literally described as a demented psychopath, a sadist, a gruesome murderer, a masochist, worse than Caligula and Nero. Oh boy. Yay. Now, a very fascinating turning point in the legacy of Vlad came just a handful of years after his death. Though the printing press had been invented during his lifetime, it wasn't until afterwards that he, his legacy essentially became immortal. Many books from the late 1400s contain woodcuts of scenes from his life and his various military campaigns. If you were even passingly familiar with Vlad Depesh, as the actual person, 
you've probably seen some of these woodcuts. Even if you were illiterate at the time, which was most people, you could gain information about who he was and the things he did just by the pictures, which are now available in the books, which are obviously given the printing press and mass produced rather than hand drawn. And the fact that they were a movable type meant that they could be created quite quickly. The books about him actually became big bestsellers throughout Europe because of the cruelty he inflicted on people and the name that came with it. Two of the most famous copies are the 1499 Nuremberg edition and the 1500 Strasbourg edition. And the pages 12 through 13 in these copies, there's a depiction above one of the pictures that titles it a mischievous tyrant called Dracula Voda. Now, Vlad, it said in this book, he had a big copper cauldron built and then put a lid on it that was made of whole, I'm sorry, made of wood with holes on top of it, like a steamer, I'm assuming. And then he put people in the cauldron, put their heads in the holes, and then also fastened them to their position so he could boil them alive. And then obviously he filled it with water, set fire under, under it. And in the book, it also says, and the people cried their eyes out until they were boiled to death. And he sat there enjoying it. And then it says he also invited frightening, terrible, unheard of tortures to other people. He ordered that women be impaled together with their suckling babies on the same stake, which was actually mentioned before. And the babies fought for their lives at their mother's breasts until their mothers died. That he had women's breasts cut off and put babies inside head first, thus also having them impaled together. There's even a pamphlet from the 1400s that is actually titled The Frightening and Truly Extraordinary Story of a Wicked Blood-Drinking Tyrant Called Prince Dracula. And obviously, when looking at it today, the atrocities that he committed could be viewed as actually acts of genocide or even international war crimes, depending on what kind of spin you want to put on it. Romanian Defense Minister Ian Mercia Pascu dates that Vlad would have been condemned for war crimes against humanity had he been put on trial at Nuremberg, obviously relating to World War II. It's estimated that during his campaigns, he had killed an around 80,000 people and impaled close to 20,000 people, which essentially means that he probably killed up to around 100,000 people in total because you don't come back from being impaled. Now, despite knowing all of this, the people of Transylvania and Wallachia in particular actually view him as a national hero, and he's been revered ever since his death as the hero who saved Christianity from the, or at least Christian Romania from the oncoming Turks. They also view him as a ruler who, though obviously was a tyrant, but he was realistic in his punishments of his enemies and those who would oppose the country, the rule, and the customs. Now, the first epic poem about him was actually written in the late 1700s, about 300 years after he died, called Tinganyada, and it paints Vlad as a hero. And in this poem, he's fighting the boyars, the Ottomans, the Strigoi, which are, is the Romanian word for vampires, and other evil spirits. And in this, he also is heading an army of gypsies and angels. Okay. <laughs> sure he was. 
<laughs> There's also a very well-known historic ballad about him called The Third Letter. And the ballad in the, the lyrics actually asks him to return from the grave and rise to annihilate the enemies, enemies, the enemies of Romania. And in that one of these sentences is, you must come, O dread impaler, confound them to your care. Split them in two partitions, hear the fools, the rascals there. Shove them into two enclosures from the broad daylight and sile them, and set fire to the prison and the lunatic asylum. Yeah, buds. Now, stepping out of the real world for a minute and into fiction, because we all know where this is going, Vlad's other lasting reputation is, of course, the Dracula. You can't have one without the other nowadays. That's true. Yeah. So, obviously, drawing mostly on Vlad's life, as well as other sources from the area, including Elizabeth Bathory, very likely, because she was also considered to possibly be drinking blood and a vampire, Bram Stoker set out to write his gothic horror story in the late 1800s. And in it, he sets the century-long association with Dracula, vampires, and Vlad all together in one. In case you don't know, Bram Stoker had never traveled outside of the UK. So these are all stories he had heard or read about, but did not know anything hmm. about from firsthand. Nor had he ever seen, like there's one castle, and I think, I don't know if I have information on it. Yes, yeah. There's a castle he's seen in a book that he knew was from the area. And it he used that as inspiration for Dracula's castle in the book. But it's not actually Dracula. We'll get into that in a second. Now, in contrast to popular belief, Stoker did not actually have a lot of information about Vlad. He used him as a specific base for his character of Dracula. And all the working copies of Dracula up until publishing, the character was actually called Count Vampire. So Count Vampire. Modern accounts actually say that, quote, he borrowed the name in scraps of miscellaneous information about the history of Lalakia when he was writing this book. The book's castle, as I mentioned, also the castle in the books that he was reading inspired him to create Dracula's castle. And that castle is actually known as Braun Castle and it's in Romania. And it has ever since been associated with Vlad Dracul. And it's also sometimes called Dracula's castle. But Braun Castle... Not Bram Castle, as in Bram Stoker, but Bram, as in B-R-A-N. But modern scholars do not believe that that castle was ever a residence for the actual person. Now, despite this, his melding of the two, as we mentioned, are just absolutely synonymous now. And in doing that, not only does Vlad Dracul have a, a centuries-long reputation, but the two of them together are the longest lasting characters in all of fiction. And there have been so many depictions of Dracula, Vlad, and, and vampires, particularly, particularly since Murnau's 1922 vampire classic that everyone should watch. What is it? Bram Stoker's Dracula? You're talking about the movie version, right? No, I'm talking about Nosferatu. Oh, 1922 Nosferatu. Murnau. I'm sorry. Uh, that was 1991. It was close enough. <laughs> Therefore, I thought of... Yes, yeah. Gary Oldman did make a very good Dracula. 
But Gary uh, Oldman. And, but Nosferatu, the original. Yeah, we're from talking. 1922 is pretty good, too. Starting off with Nosferatu. If you've not seen it, watch it. It's it's great. You if you're s- of age. It's not a scary movie. I know, but just make sure that we're covered. <laughs> <laughs> I also have not seen that movie in like, oh, 15 years. All right, we'll, we'll, we'll correct that. I got you covered. So Nosferatu was a silent film. Came out in 1922. And then there was also a 1921 Hungarian film about uh, uh, Vlad Rakul's death as well. And the two together really brought him more into the mainstream. And obviously mixing him with the legend of vampires gives him a much more visual representation than just obviously uh, the book, Dracula. Now, for those who are also not familiar with Nosferatu, Nosferatu was based on the book by Bram Stoker. However, being very closely related to the book, it caused the movie to have a lot of criticism, but particularly from Stoker's estate. And in fact, it was so closely related to the book that his, I believe it was Stoker's widow, began a lawsuit against Murnau and it really wasn't until Universal Studios bought the rights from the Stoker estate to start releasing movies that were based off the book which happened in 1930 were there more films that were allowed to be made featuring the story of Dracula from the Bram Stoker novel and obviously there have been countless films since 1930 most memorably Bella Lugosi throughout the 30s, and Christopher Lee in the 1960s in the Hammer films. Those are fun. Obviously, we have so many TV shows with characters based off of Dracula, and, and obviously in doing so, Vlad Tepesh, but video games, music, anime, radio shows, games, toys, books, comics, children's shows, and... Um, also made his way into pornography as early as 1964. And ever since, you can find Dracula in, in, in pornography, both as hetero and homosexual. Why not? I mean, if you're going to like the Anne Rice stuff, Anne Rice is what mostly brought vampires into the sexual mainstream which is kind of into the 70s and the heyday of pornography so you know it, it kind of all goes together i guess obviously many many films have been made about dracula based off the book but there have also been many many films about the life of Vlad tepesh as well and a movie i mentioned to you that i don't think that you've watched because we've been way too busy one of my favorite is actually a movie that's from 2000 and it stars Rudolph Martin and it's called Dark Prince, The True Story of Dracula. And the best thing about this movie, well, several things about this movie. So the movie itself premiered in 2000. Would you like to know when it premiered? I'll give you one guess. October 31st? Yep. Because what what other date are you going to really release a Dracula movie? Yeah, it came out on Halloween of 2000. Now, 
For anyone listening who's fans of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Rudolph Martin and Dracula might seem a little familiar. One of my favorite episodes of Buffy is actually when he makes an appearance. The only time in the entire Buffy, seven years of Buffy, that Dracula makes an appearance, the master of all vampires. And this episode is called Buffy vs. Dracula, of course. And it is the very first episode of season five. I recommend watching it. I think it's on Amazon Prime. If not, I'm thinking you can find it online somewhere for sure. And it actually, the this particular episode aired one month before the release of the film. And it's certainly an unusual episode. I like it a lot. I think it's very fun. Now, to leave everything on an even more fun note, I did not realize this until recently. For those who are fans of Ghostbusters 2, I know that there are a lot of them, even if you don't want to say that you're fans of Ghostbusters 2. I think it's fun. It's a guilty pleasure. It's just silly. But the main villain in that movie is Vigo the Carpathian, who is also based off of Vlad Bebesh. And one of my absolute favorite quotes from the entire movie, particularly involving Vigo, is when he says, I, Vigo, the scourge of Carpathia, the sorrow of Moldavia, command you on a mountain of skulls in the castle of pain, I sat on a throne of blood. Very fitting for blood fetish. No way. Yeah. Not on a throne of blood. Sounds about right, though. I mean... I mean, castle of pain even more so. <laughs> so that'll do for this episode of History Explained with It All. And we hope to see you next week as we trek through history to explain it all. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye.